From 11FS, I'm Jason Bates, and this is Fintech Insider News. Coming up, Revolut and Square expand into cryptocurrency as Bitcoin prices soar, and we discussed the FCA's latest sandbox cohort. Oh, and CryptoKitties. Simon breaks down their catributes. All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider News, coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork London. My name is Jason Bates and today I'm joined by my 11FS colleague, Simon Taylor. Hello. Hello, Simon. How are you? I'm very well. What have you been up to this week? Oh my goodness, interesting conversations with people wanting to get into building trade finance banks and all kinds of things happening in the asset and investment space. Um, super exciting times. Um, spending a lot of time talking to various people thinking about uh, what on earth is happening with the Bitcoin price, as I'm yeah. sure we'll get into. Really? And of course, crypto kitties, but we're going to foreshadow and just leave that there. <laughs> Excellent. Before we begin, we just wanted to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Huel. How many of you listening have skipped breakfast or are heading out to the shop to buy lunch? Sometimes we have to buy expensive convenience food that isn't always that healthy. I do all the time. You know, you're, it's 20 minutes before a meeting. You only have a little bit of time. Go out and grab a crappy sandwich. Well, Huel offers an affordable and nutritious alternative, and we use it in the office, and I really enjoy it. The benefits are that it takes 30 seconds to make. It's a complete food source, so it has all those essential vitamins and minerals. It's low in sugar. I just add a few scoops of powder to the water and I've got a meal to go. I had a bit of ice, I'd sometimes add an espresso, a little bit of chocolate and it tastes like some mocha milkshake that I know is good for me. So that's great. It sustains energy, tastes great and I think you've got something like nine flavours to choose from. So Huel offered to sponsor the podcast. We jumped on the uh, the chance and we've got an exclusive £10 discount for your first order. If you head to my.huel.com slash fintech, enter your email and you'll get a discount code for £10 off on us. They've never done this before. This is definitely very much of an experiment for them. So give it a go. See what you think. Enough about us. Let's introduce our guests. Well, I've been in Antwerp with uh, Vlerik is that how you say it? Business School. Uh, they put on an amazing event, which I was lucky enough to keynote, and I had the most amazing hangover the day after. So yesterday was pretty much ruined. Um, <laughs> other than that, moving swiftly on, uh, today joining us, we've got FT Alphaville journalist Kadim Shuba. Hello, how's it going? I'm good. Have you had a good week? Uh, kind of. I'm finding it very hard to maintain like journalistic skepticism about Bitcoin because it keeps doubling in value. Um, but otherwise... <laughs> Otherwise, great. Excellent. And we've got blogger, speaker, fintech guru, Liz Lumley. Hello, everybody. I'm feeling very insecure right now because uh, you're about to introduce him sitting next to a very, very glamorous Sharon. I feel inadequate. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Bringing us on to Sharon Odea, consultant, speaker, digital expert, and looking very glam today. I am. I'm going to the Cabinet Office Christmas drinks. Oh, wow. So I'm not dressed up for you, I'm afraid. Oh, dear. And today, we've also got a stowaway. Who are you and what are you doing here? I'm Gela, and I'm not an alcoholic because I'm the only one without a drink in this room. <laughs> no, we offered you wine. It's sitting right there. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the proposition actually requires delivery and execution. <laughs> hey, self-service. Th- we oh, are in a self-service oh, oh. world. I understand that. Oh, it's a digital experience yes. on my own. Got it. Okay. Okay. Got it. <laughs> and with that, let's get on with the week's news. So, first up, 
Revolut announces expansion into cryptocurrency, a story on altfi.com submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by Emily Jane. Thanks, Emily. Simon, the first of many. I feel this is just going to be a, a Simon Taylor show today. I'm going to try and shut up as much as possible just because I'm enjoying watching the world react to my secret little society of, like, nerds. <laughs> like, no, but this is exactly it. I think this is this. What we're seeing right now is the mainstreaming of this world. You know, when I when I first started going to blockchain and, and Bitcoin events, you know, it was filled with these Bitcoin bros, trademark Liz Lumley, um, like people that were so into like anarchy and libertarianism and go fuck yourself and everything. And um, it became like this little cult. And someone did a tweet today. Someone I actually don't respect, but the tweet kind of. Um, you know, running a bell with me saying, what's the problem with Bitcoin is that there was this religion created around it, um, which, you know, it, like a long time ago, it was like, you know, people bought porn and drugs with it. I mean, that, that made it tainted. And now it's, I think, but that religion, that go fuck yourself religion has kept kind of with it for years and years and years. But now it's like, you know, my mom can go. So Revolut has a million customers as a fintech app. Primarily, they're used for FX. So you would take your pounds and get dollars or you take your euros and get pounds. Super well-liked, um, other than some of the CEO's uh, comments from, from Sharon O'Day's perspective. But other than that, um, look, this is kind of, uh, they're merging traditional banking and cryptocurrency. So you can buy and sell not just Bitcoin, but also Litecoin and Ether alongside 25 other currencies. Um, and they're trying to, they say they're trying to raise, uh, raise the divide between um, kind of old and new money. The interesting thing is this has received great fanfare, but on the day they've released it, Bitcoin happened to go from around $12,000 to around $16,500. And I think they're using a partner behind the scenes who's crashed under the weight of the new demand. I so think, Revolut I think every, to- everyone listening should know these prices are current <laughs> as of the we record this on a thursday i'm pretty certain we need to do a fintech insider news daily just because like i'm i'm looking at btcwisdom.com or bitcoinwisdom.com sorry and i'm seeing the price just move wildly uh, every minute and then one exchange it's sort of fourteen and a half thousand. on another it's sixteen and a half thousand dollars i mean this is we are in bizarre world but i was um as Liz knows, I was invited to um, Radio 4 earlier in the week to talk about it. I'm seeing it on the BBC News. I know I'm going up in the world. This I'm is what, in my kitchen and I hear Simon talking to me through my radio. Soon, soon, soon we won't have you on this podcast. Yeah, we used to have Simon it? now. It, it, it's kind 4. of like somebody discovered Warhammer in a corner somewhere. Just like this weird nerd cult and it's gone mainstream. But So Sharon, have you bought any uh, Bitcoin on Revolut? Would you? Uh, I tried to let download it today and it crashed again, along with everyone else. As you say, they, uh, it, it's not quite stable at the moment. I think it's quite interesting, though, that it's taking it, as you say, from the kind of nerd market into the early adopter towards the mass market adoption curve somewhere there. But do you not think this is it's slightly dangerous? Yeah. Because on one hand, like I can move things across a variety of currencies in Revolut and suddenly we're into the mass market. Everyone's saying, wow, look at all this stuff go up. Maybe I should just put a lot of money in. And this, this is a sure thing, isn't it? This is not financial advice, by the way, listeners. Yeah, there is that question about whether you know it's, it's fueling the bubble further among perhaps not particularly well-informed spectators um, or speculators even. Uh, so Nikolai Staronsky, who I think I previously called a cock on this podcast, um, he, he said that 99% of Bitcoin transaction volumes are speculation-driven uh, with just 1% of volumes involving everyday applications. So that's kind of a shift for Revolut because it used to be we're providing banking services for global citizens to yeah. 
buy things to receive money to run their business and now we're helping people to become speculators which is a different proposition to what they were doing before right yeah i think and just and i was just going to disagree with what you said earlier about how like you know in the past it was always like you know this sort of annoying cult and now we have something that's more mainstream and better and i didn't say it was better i say this is like one of the signs that yeah it's going into the mainstream that it's like you know remember when the internet was first around and it was all these little codes you had to know to get on the message boards yeah. and all these like little nerdy guys and everything and now it's but it was kind of more interesting when it was just the nerds because they were like oh we're we're experimenting politically and we're doing cool things with computer science and cryptography and we're just trying to figure stuff out and just you know experimenting and now it's just hey the price went up and it doubled and i want to buy some and now i can you know i need new apps so i can just buy it really easily and the general public is just ruining things i know they were giving out leaflets about bitcoin at woking station i don't know the whole uh i mean like i said sort of in in the intro i i'm you know i'm just in that state of like i there's no like explanation there's no all you can sort of do is just try and understand as much as possible what's going on um but it's all very exciting and interesting and weird but it's not very kind of like inspiring and not very interesting right like what's interesting is how we want it banking's not supposed to be interesting it's just supposed to work okay like this is oh, i don't want interesting don't i this the drama this drama is too much <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's you know not to you know you know toot Alphaville's own horn. I would really recommend reading the post that Isabella Kaminska, my colleague, wrote today, just about how bad the market structure is, right? It's just um, and how like everything everywhere you look, you go, this is not right, and yet the price doubles and doubles and doubles, um, and that's sort of less exciting than here's a sort of weird intellectual movement about. Um, it may not be one that you could agree with, but it's kind of interesting and they're experimenting and they're pushing boundaries. It, but at the same time, isn't there something about the fact that it's breaking those rules of economics to a certain degree and it's become purely speculative? But yet, the really interesting thing in that blog post that Izzy said is, like, who benefits from the price going down? If you can, because it's not obvious that somebody does. So really, people are rushing in to buy this thing, but the, nobody's really benefiting. Every market has somebody that benefits from, you know, it's balanced. Somebody wants to buy somebody wants to sell we just don't have that here and usually when the speculators rush in when the public rush in that's the sign that the bubble's over but this could be the beginning it might not be it might be the very end and it could be be by monday here no jamie diamond is going to benefit because you know he bought on the future for a short sell you know that he's banking on this fundamentally crashing and saying screw the rest of y'all i predicted this I know because I noticed like Lloyd Blank Blankenfeld was doing the same thing. As Seriously, well. you know somebody, you know that. people that are that are dismissing this as a as a legitimate way of banking or moving money in the future have actually doubled down on this and they're waiting for a crash. Those are the people that are going to benefit. That's just it. It's a it's a mortgage backed security scandal all over again with the reinsurance on who's selling the short. That's it. But but isn't it when you can really tell that it's a bubble, when you have conversations like this of, it's just going to keep going up and up. It's like, there's nothing about it, but it's doing it every day. It's just, it's never going to come down. This this baby's going to go stratospheric. Yes, but, not- it, yes but it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody says this time it's different. And there is an argument for this time it's different being made in, made in the press, of course. But I, I, there's... Um, a great story submitted here to uh, Fintech Insider News by Amika Onru um, that says Square's unleashing crypto into more of its cash uh, app users as well. So uh, it's not just the revolutes of the world. There are others now making this happen. Yeah, but don't you think that that's like a better thing? This is going almost against Kedim as well. We'll, we'll fight afterwards. Um, but it's like right now it is. It's the drama. It's up and up and up. Oh, it's hoarded. It's like investors. And But what if Bitcoin was actually used in its original utopian vision? 
as this, you know, non-sovereign currency that you could use anywhere. Where you know, you but could- it's but it's very bad for that. I mean, the transaction times, the uh, costs, the electricity usage. The it's like a, it's a bad currency, but it's a great speculative crypto asset. It is funny how the, the the price rising it does make it bad for transactions because the stories that people tell are about how oh I bought something with it in the past and wasn't that dumb, right? Like, <laughs> and and you go oh yeah, so you can't use this for transactions because every transaction makes you look like a fool. Well, this is why. Um, so my co-host on uh, Blockchain Insider, which is available on iTunes now. <laughs> uh, talks about this as being a black hole for liquidity. Like mon- you would put cash in, but you would. Why would you ever sell it? So then it becomes a black hole for liquidity. And the original um, reason, the Satoshi white paper that comes out that describes Bitcoin in 2008, and then Bitcoin's launched in 2009, describes the financial crisis as being the problem. Describes too much easing as being the issue. Describes central banks and banks as being the problem. Their solution was peer-to-peer digital cash. Bitcoin hasn't evolved into peer-to-peer digital cash for all the reasons that Jason said, but it has evolved into this monster that sucks in liquidity. Now, let's t- give this some real scale. It's around four hundred billion in, in market cap, which is not nothing. But the what the mortgage-backed security crisis was around seventy trillion U.S. dollars. So let's put keep it in perspective. It's a petri dish experiment, that's for sure. It's a petri dish experiment in which. Yum! Somebody you know could get really harmed by putting all of their life savings into. No, it. absolutely. But that's that's just it. But then take a look at what we consider kind of the vices and where the liquidity around the vice markets come. It is. I don't want to go back to this notion of using Bitcoin to do you know Silk Road sort of transactions. But gambling is a fundamental vice that we still have legalized in some way, shape, or form. This is just a secondary asset class that's being played with until we figure out what the grand experiment is. I, I, I love and, that statement. And that's exactly what it is. That, that asset class term is one that's underused. People hear the term cryptocurrency, and I find that really unhelpful. Crypto assets is a much better term. Actually, it's just a secondary asset market, period. Assets defined by a parameter that happens to be digital, happens to be involved with with crypto and and securities and and all of this fun stuff and nodes beyond belief. But it's an asset class and we need to actually regulate it and treat it like an asset class. And that's one of the things that we haven't done yet in the industry, which is why we're seeing the 19,000 pink, you know, but today it's 19 grand. No, but it's an asset class. I mean... What look? I'm betting it all on black, or I don't know. Maybe it's red tomorrow, and and I don't know. Does somebody have a jack up their yeah, sleeve? How many people? I don't know. How many people to compare it to the housing crisis? I mean, how many normal people on the street are putting their life savings into Bitcoin? See, this is the interesting question. Now it's available on Revolut. Now it's available on Cash App users by Square. Will that be the case? And look, um, I, I got to mention, if you want to see what the journey looks like, um, we actually put this into our competitor insights platform, 11FS Pulse, uh, on the. 5th of December, so a um, good number of days ago. And actually, this journey, um, so Ross, who reviews all of our customer journeys, said it was super slick, couldn't be easier, so easy to buy Bitcoin. Um, and for those of you who don't know, like 11FS is like, it's, it's on Netflix for fintech. It helps you see what those user experiences are like. But when you watch this video, you just think, wow, that was so easy. What could go wrong? Yeah, well, exactly. So to the point about nobody's been hurt yet, I do think that somebody will. There will be that story in which somebody lost their life savings on it. And it's always when there's a story that we do something. And I think so far the, the regulation has, around this has been quite sensible. It's Exchanges need to get that KYC and AML correct. Uh, people need to consider the source of funds and all that sort of stuff. But there's definitely an education piece that I think is missing. And I hope we can start to plug that gap. Well, I'm going to have to move this on because we could just spend basically the entire podcast going back and forth. Crypto kitties. <laughs> <laughs> They're coming. 
Okay, I know there's another story coming later, Simon. You, Bitcoin just gets, uh, blockchain just gets all the great stories. So I feel like we're just coming up with a boring banking story now. Core banking system overhauls report. You're not excited by I'm not. Core. Like why they're necessary, why most fail, and how to make them work. This has been from a bank perspective, not a fintech startup perspective, like the biggest problem with banks have been dealing with for the past few years. So yeah, so this is one of those nice, chunky, boring stories that is kind of explains underlying what's going on with technology and banking. Sure, because this is like, a heart transplant. You only do it if you absolutely have to. It's super I risky. I think actually you don't do heart transplants generally, right? Yeah. Like, not your entire heart transplant. The Jarek artificial heart again. No, this is The Hobbit. It is the prequel. <laughs> the fundamental prequel to the Lord of the Rings trilogy that fintech actually is. But you need to read The Hobbit to understand the entire modus operandi, right? It's swear to God. This is a <laughs> <laughs> That was so nerdy. <laughs> I try to deliver. But I, I've been talking about this for eons. This is what I focused on is how you do core renewal, right? How do you do business as usual? You know the answer? You don't. That's exactly you don't. it. <laughs> you don't. But I mean, it's also the rip and replace when you're trying to get everybody else and port them onto a brand new system. And you, that, that's massive. So what else did this uh, core banking system report have to say? So I like some of the um, bullets here that, um, that Laura, our producer, picked out for us. Thank you, Laura. Um, Core software systems, uh, which the operations for each product um, division feed into, they're extensive, they're complex, and they're foundational. This is a system that's been there, and it's like sedimentary rock. Year after year, it's been built on new functionality, new compliance, and these old systems have become so outdated that they're unable to make the most of an increasingly valuable resource, which is data. It's hurting banks, and it's making overhauls of those systems essential. And there are new calls available. Um, There are new ways of doing things. Um, and they can make a real difference. But banks can't overhaul those systems without help. That apparently- yeah, I wanted to interrupt you because I wanted to say this one. This is this is, I think, is very, very core. Banks can't overhaul their systems without help. They need to con consultants, system integrators, system hosts, and software providers for such massive projects. This the assumption is, is massive. Yeah, but... Th- this is what banks do. They put too many cooks in the kitchen and they spend millions and millions of pounds and they go take a, such a long time. And this is why they are fucking up. So is it too much consultants or not enough consultants? Because I'm aware I'm in a room of consultants. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think it's, it's lots of them from different places. It's, it's this assumption that I have to have a cast of thousands to start with before I know the thing's going to work. And if I throw enough money and people at it from day one, that's how I'm going to succeed. I'm yeah, just going to have this bazooka of cash. And, but actually... And a t- bazooka of cash? Yeah. I want one of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want one too, Jason. I want one too. Here's hoping the podcast thing works out. <laughs> uh, hey, Bitcoin is doing all right. <laughs> I guess it's that old age question, you know, can you fix the car while you drive the car at the same time? Or is it that they will end up just trying to buy out someone who's built this from the ground up and replacing it? Or do you need a skateboard? Yeah. yeah. But because uh, I think that there is uh, there is a question. I mean, we talk to clients about this all the time of uh, on, uh, there seems to be this portfolio approach of one digitizing and driving costs out of the business, doing that typical thing. But it only gets you to a certain point. There's like a wall you're just not going to be able to get by. And because you're still working on the there. same workflow and the same exactly. data chains and the same. All of that, if you've got a process, it's baked in. Yeah. It's the process that you're attached to. I think that's one of the fundamental challenges is that we're attached to process in this industry. Well, it's also the fact that they're 
product distribution paradigm, that idea of we've got this product engine and it's our system and this is how we distribute it, is very different from an intelligent services idea of digital isn't just this thing we add on to the, the financial product. It is the entire thing. Get me thing. some digital. <laughs> Get me some digital now. But it's, I mean, but that's just it. So going back to this notion of if you're only looking at it from a product placement, so it's product-centric, you're also accounting for it differently. Yeah. If you decided to actually look at a service in a digital space, it's actually a market-based approach. It's not product-oriented. It fundamentally re-architects your entire systems. That's the whole point. Part of the problem is we're, again, attached to process and process attached to product and product is attached to a singular way of accounting for it. This and is the way we've always done things, Keller. Well, That's fantastic. How's it working out for you? <laughs> I was talking to a, to a banking exec today and we were talking about this Gordian knot because yeah, it's not a technology problem. It's yeah. a technology incentives, processes, the way you structure the silos, the systems beneath them. It's not one thing. It's You could go in and change the technology, but unless you change everything at once, then it's just not going to work. So did, how didn't, with didn't a, HSBC try this with the one project a few years ago? Everyone has tried it. Almost everyone we've spoken to has, has tried it three or four times. We still talking about it. We still got jobs, right? No, but I mean, going back to the social notion of incentive, you just... <laughs> like incentives are actually improperly structured. I have to. I look at this as the consultancy bank industrial complex. Yeah, mm. me too. Because mm. there is absolutely no skin in the game from the SI or the consultant providers. They're putting the people on benches and taking day rates. Part of it's this bodies in- game, isn't it? It's it's how absolutely. many bodies can I sell? And that that so. complex and that way that big IT and big projects happen is why we start 11FS. I mean, it really is. We are playing that arbitrage of how how is it that a small fintech can do so much with a team of 12 and, you know, less than a million, yet it, yet 1.6 billion later, you know, Williams and Glynn's having, you know, has some problems there. But it's an incentive structure. That's the whole point. I think we've got... It starts from the philosophy of why you're doing it. How do you actually incent every party to make it more efficient and do projects quickly and not sit on backbenches and they have skin in the game, that there's an actual revenue clawback between the arrangements of who's doing the work and who's paying for the work? Sure. I mean, I'm going back to accounting every single time. We got this all wrong. I think there's this barbell that's emerging of like we either do the massive program or we try innovation. You know, we have the lab and we have the fluffy stuff or it's like a massive program. And it's like this trying, this like nice stuff, great marketing. And you probably learn some stuff. And and the ones that do it well, actually invest in companies, build partnerships. I think it actually can be done well. But this, this kind of lab doesn't very rarely, once in a blue moon, does it grow a new product that's actually making a difference to the bottom Innovation line. has to be commercialized. Yeah. And if yeah. you can't pull that out of the lab setting, then all you're doing is an exercise in... Yeah, but some of these labs were set up with no no intention to ever get to that point. And, and that's fine. If there's a political fiefdom, fine. On the other hand, if you're actually going to go with the spirit of why you set it up in the first place, it should produce a commercial thing. And, and if you think about it, like, how would a startup think about this? They'd be, they'd be ruthlessly commercial. You, they have to get live. They have to get product in customers' hands now otherwise that's it no mortgage payment they are going back to the, the kids are moving the in with the grandparents this is the ultimate betrayal of the innovation lab the startups come and they think yes we're gonna we're gonna get in this bank's innovation lab and then they get hit with the fucking brick wall of reality mm. when it's a show it's PR and nothing is gonna come out of it and it's really you feel like your heart is being ripped out of you when you watch this happen I watched this happen and it's heartbreaking and it's not right 
But we can move from this. You see, I'm no, going to pivot this. No, no I'm going to pivot this to a better story. <laughs> <laughs> to a positive story. You told me I was really happy about it. You were. Though. You were happy. But, but the FCA has just revealed their next round of successful uh, firms in the regulatory sandbox. And banks. And banks and are in there banks too. banks are in there. That is the key. So, so what would we pull out from here? Who's in the sandbox? Well, uh, Curl, our good friend Mike Kelly, his organisation there, there are payments network designed to around open banking APIs, which works via... At handle username, so a bit like you can at mention somebody on Twitter. Uh, that's a re- and direct bank transfers. Really interesting organisation. And Mike's um, been on the show before. Um, knows it's super savvy technical guy and, and great at explaining stuff. But also First Direct and Bud. So First Direct, big bank, nationwide. They've got an automated solution for providing digital savings guidance. Interesting nationwide. You think of them as being kind of the community bank, the the kind of the building society. Here they are in the innovation lab. And for the first sort of three cohorts, we didn't see the big banks. And it's interesting to me that it's interesting to me that uh, when you're trying to get things done in a large bank, often there's this barrier of like, how do I get it live? How do I get it live? The innovation lab for doing new things is a new route to getting there when you're playing in that space. And, and I'm glad to see them taking it up. And I think also um, it says Barclays nationwide first direct again and what, I guess they're what, HSBC what's a automated solution providing digital sa- is that like digital savings guidance is that like a drop down menu or is it a like a new website that has like a series of like flow charts or it's, it's interesting that there there is this problem with advice and guidance you know so you come along and you say great Jason I'd like to put 20 pounds a month aside you know where where do I put that and what you know? Can I advise you on what to, I can tell you the products that are out there? But can I tell you that you should really be acquiring, creating three to six months of liquid cash somewhere, and then on top of that, probably maxing your ISA out, and on top of that, doing other things? Well, not really. Can't really get into that. So I hope that it's actually trying to to guide people along because to that services versus product piece especially in savings investments and all of those things there's not really that sort of string of pearls that the ability to get from one thing to another uh it's really difficult i think i'm a big favor of of the building societies getting more involved with this especially sandboxes i mean you know in in the u.s there's this whole string of community banks um you know that's where most people have their american version of a current account you know in this country it's the big four the big five and so the building societies were the only alternative to the Barclays and the Lloyds and the HSBCs. And um, and they are. They're closer to the customer. They're smaller. They're more agile. So, you know, them being involved with, they might not be able to do their own big, huge innovation lab, but they can get in the sandbox and meet Finta. I, I think this is a really good thing. Well, I, d- I don't here. entirely get why big banks are in the sandbox. That's exactly. That's a, that, because see, this is what the FCA had a huge problem with. Because, like, part of it is, like... the original sandbox yeah. is that... All the fintechs came running because they could see the advantage. Like, we want to be in this. The banks didn't. No, no, but and so I mean when is- they got in, some of the, some startups actually were, were faced with a situation where they might have to have left because there was no bank to test their products with. So they, had to, they didn't, the FCA did not communicate the benefit of the sandbox to the banks in the best way. Well, no, as, as in I get the advantage for the startups being able to, like, connect with a bank and make a build, build a partnership. But if the idea is we need to create a space for entrance to this market, um, which is highly regulated, we need to create a space where they can engage with the regulator and then they can break yeah, but, in. Yeah, but that, why that the, why see, then really, do I need really to give what, that what the, the FCA, banks What the FCA sandbox really was was a benevolent honeypot. 
okay? The FCA was not getting the information that they wanted from uh, startups, and I don't think it, I, I'm saying it's benevolent, and so they thought, we're going we're gonna to create this organization project, Innovate in the Sandbox, to lure them in so that we can learn more from them. Right, okay? but, but, but the, banks have re- the banks have the resources, they have yeah, the regular connections, so the banks, they have the, the people, like, so why, why do they need the sandbox? This? But, but this isn't, but it's not, a, it's not an accelerator incubator. Actually, the, the, it's a regulatory sandbox. So if you want to do something that's on that, that borderline of guidance and advice, and in a big bank, you say, the lawyer says, oh, you can't touch that because it opens us up to all kinds of problems. You can take that to the sandbox and the FCA will do some very close uh, monitoring and working with you on that experiment. And they basically say, look, we're not going to take you to court and you're not going to get big fines over this because you're working with us. So it's very much aimed at things that would be for the social good, things that would be good for society, but also things that were a bit on the sort of the Gray area. Would your would the hardest internal compliance guy uh, raise an eyebrow at this thing? And if so, yet it would still be good for the customer. Then why not work with us uh, yeah, on making it happen? I, I guess what I mean is, um, or my my sense of it was, you have a, a market which is not easy to break into. Um, you have a sort of oligopoly of you know. It was about competition. Of, yeah, about competition. And now you have the banks, you know, playing I, I in the sandbox. It was you go well, about competition. I think it was about a lack of genuine change in the products and service offerings from financial institutions and it was intended to not be biased towards fintechs but actually we to, to be biased towards the consumer's benefit so how do i do that well it has to be inclusive and some a large organization i've worked in large organizations that are that are financial institutions getting things done getting them live has a whole bunch of hoops that you have to jump through that make complete sense if you're dealing with the mainframe and live systems and so on but if you're dealing with 100 customers on something that's experimental typically you have to follow exactly the same process and that means that great ideas that are in those companies that could really benefit affect those customers never see the light of day ultimately the consumer loses so this was about finding a way in which the consumer could win that gets around the existing processes that creates the permission inside organizations large and small who had relied on compliance professionals who tend to look at everything in uh, really comprehensive ways and good on them because big things like that need that comprehensive mindset but with 100 customers with something genuinely new where you're just trying to figure out does it work that isn't always appropriate it's actually the space where they can play with their own conduct risk internally. Mm-hmm. So it's a safe space where they're not going to be scrutinized. They don't have to worry about the reporting back to the regulator. The regulator has that insight as it's going live that they can adjust for a mutually beneficial, appropriate level of conduct risk. So testing a new service, testing a new way of communication, testing any sort of delivery form in a way that's safe. In a, it's a safe space. It's not even just a honeypot. It's a safe space. And then that actually kind of becomes your testing bed. You can really quickly determine this is completely out of our governance structure. It's never going to happen. Or we identified where in our governance structure we are a blockage. And we now have the regulator's approval to remove that blockage to allow us to do things differently. I think it's a perfect test place for them. But it's a safe space. No, but I think I think what Kadeem was getting on, I mean, we I, I agree for fintechs, it is. It's a it's a wonderful But for banks as well. But I don't think at the beginning when they first launched this that was communic- that was communicated to the banks in that way because first of all with banks deal with regulators they're going to do the le- they're not going to walk into a regulator willingly okay and two they're like well we've got our own sandbox why, why are we going to do it i guess i mean i'm i'm, I'm sorry uh, sorry sorry that's <laughs> right jason uh, <laughs> you know, should we I mean, talk I, about something else i think i mean all, like, you've you've all like made like very good 
argument and I and I you know concede defeat. But my my, my, my parting shot will, will sort of be you know if what the regular is saying is um uh, you know we're gonna let. So Big hold on, you were conceding this. defeat and now you've got a parting shot. That's how it works, you know. Right, I'm, I'm okay. riding away on my horse. I'm just going to fire an arrow before I... You realize it ain't going to hit nothing. Wearing me, it ain't going to hit nothing at all. Um, but, you know, if the regulator is saying that, um, in, you know, on the one hand, we want new entrants into the space and so forth, we're going to create a regulatory space for them, that's one thing. If they're saying our regulation stifles innovation among the big players... And that's, I don't know, I feel like it's a different proposition. I don't think that's what they're saying. I wouldn't, consi- I wouldn't say that at all. I think they're saying, let's actually create a level framework that we can ask everyone to play into to be innovative. And regulation is pushing innovation with a baseline that everyone has to meet. So if you're talking about kind of leveling the playing field in this oligopoly, the regulation is that level playing field in the oligopoly that's inviting other new entrants. And in the sandbox in the first year was definitely the way to, to bring them in. So I'm going to call a halt to this oh, one. Right. I'm going to call All a right. halt. Because I really want to talk about the next... I, want to, I really want exactly. to comment on the next topic. Oh. <laughs> Liz, you like can be first to, to talk on the, on the next one. Okay. So from one regulator to another, the EU Commission has extended the deadline for banks to meet some new payment standards around PSD2. So, Liz. Shocker, 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 shocker. Uh, When the the PSD2 first came out with the documentation a few years ago, I held a roundtable with banks and fintechs looking at easing access to faster payments. Um, And someone stood up and said, you know what, every startup I've met has read the PSD2 documentation backwards and forwards and translated into 14 languages and read it to their kids at bedtime. How many of the banks here have read it and not one did? Okay. Now, this goes back to my problem, well, not problem, issue with regulation. Banks look at any regulation and say, send it to compliance. We're going to do the least we can possibly need to do to not get fined. And you know what? I do – the PSD2, uh, there are two things that I think – oh, God. The oh, – the, <laughs> January 13th, I have saved some fireworks from Guy Fawkes <laughs> party that's coming next year. So I do not think the banks have any idea with the CMA directive here in the UK what's going to hit them. I don't think they have any concept of what's going on. But this is because this is separate from the CMA They're, open it's similar, banking. Yeah, it's, it's fundamentally it's a, different. But it's but it's similar. There's in overlap. Tone. But you might argue that actually yeah. the the rules or the the agreement that the CMA9 have with the implementation entity and all of that kind of thing, that still holds. Yeah, but, it, but it's a framework-based directive. It's not a standards-based directive. So the banks can interpret how they're going to comply with the CMA directive. But the CMA9 uh, have come, already come up with their open API yeah, standards. Yeah, the OBIE and the, is, is, is um, agreeing to it. So, yeah, so, I'm not, so going back to PSD2, I am not surprised that they need a deadline extension because I don't think they're prepared for what's because happening. Because even the... the RTS, the uh, the regulatory technical requirements standards, standards, weren't due until like later next year. So we might get to a stage where the UK, through the open banking entity and the implementation entity, might be the um, might be the only place with APIs in 2018. Yeah, yeah. but you know what I think is going to happen, and this is not my wish. I know this is supposed to increase competition and have new startups, but I think Amazon and Apple and and Google are going to be like, oh, this looks nice. We can get in. And I. this is what I think is going to happen. They if they deliver half-working APIs, I think the, one of the things that I fear from all of this is 
that the registration process to get access to those APIs is going to be so cumbersome that very few people will do it. Mm. People will claim the system is live when, yes, it is, but how many people have registered it? And of those, how many are actively using it? Oh, well, they didn't pass this compliance quirk. And a lot of that will actually be um, the communication issues of a large organization. It's hard to get stuff done in a big organization, and it's hard to have hundreds of people who might be on this program all understand and all be pointing in the right direction to deliver great APIs. And even, we've been saying on the show for some time, a lot of this feels like stick. The business case for why you want this and why you want to get out in front of it. A lot of people are starting to a lot of people, I think there's a bit of a cargo cult. If I'm honest, there's a bit of this, like, yeah, no, we get it. We, we totally get it. Do you, though? No, Especially don't. the big players, because their entire business model is based largely on inertia. So, you know, they'll probably do the minimum they can get away with but, to yeah. comply. But maybe the, the way of looking at this isn't the regulation, because actually when you look at it, there are some key APIs sort of missing. Webhooks aren't there. Metadata's not there. All kinds of things that you'd love to have for, for richer services. Maybe the way of looking at it, this is that it will enable competition that, for instance, the new players and the new challenger banks can come out with regulated PSD2 APIs or CMA APIs, but also then go far and beyond, add those value-add ones. And so do you get to a point where all the more interesting services and uh, are being built on some platforms, which then, through competition, force everyone to come along, rather than saying, you have to do this. Maybe it's just about opening the door. And it's created the conversation, hasn't it? I mean, whether we like it or not, open banking is a thing, and it's probably one of the biggest things happening in financial services. That's what people said about fintech five years ago, because no, no. Korea's gone to conference. No, this is legitimate. So on Tuesday, I was chairing... She has documentation. Please I have listen. documentation, I literally do. On Tuesday, I was chairing FData's Open Banking Summit, and what was really interesting is we saw uh, Chris Michael and Ralph Bragg, who are the technical leadership for the UK Open Banking Implementation Entity, OBIE, actually demo the functionality of this directory that allows that allows those third parties to verify and validate the certifications that they've got from their, their local regulators or the competent regulatory authority. And for others to actually search and validate that. So it's actually created this, they've got a live demo going of this directory. So the certification process is there. They actually created one, an artificial one, a test one, and in, in, in mere seconds for us to watch. But it actually does map back to each one of the, the CMA9, and each one of them are listed, and you have all of the, the third-party providers that can actually validate the certification. That goes back as to Jason's a, point, that thing. it's like, you know, open banking will happen in the UK, but what's going on with Europe? Well, this is serving as a standard for Europe to look at. The European Commissioner was actually talking about this live with us on Tuesday. So they know that they're going to have to actually play with this similar game, that there is an incentive to actually have similar standards across Europe and other zones. We had regulators from the U.S., and we had representatives from other geographies, including Asia and Russia, talking about the need for a global set standard. In fact, the entire outcome of this discussion was, how do we achieve global standardization that actually makes it truly open? We all have incentive to play. And the first to market to do this will be the UK, for all intents and purposes. What are the lessons we're going to learn? It doesn't necessarily mean the UK is going to do it right, but it's definitely one of the first movers. And there's a way to actually balance that when you have everybody at the table conversing about it. But here's one directive to actually do this. What do you think, Sharon? Is, is PSD2 and the CMA open banking API is going to be a, a squib or is it going to actually make something have change? I've absolutely no idea. I mean, I think it, it will be driven by competition. So ultimately, I think if we... If the banks see other people sort of capturing their market share based on using those open banking standards, then I, I suspect they'll race to catch up. What do you think, Eddie? Um, I'm just, 
Uh, I got a flurry of new digital banking app cards this week, <laughs> and my wallet is bursting with sort of fintech like bank cards now. And you I sound just, so excited about that. Uh, <laughs> I. Yeah, and I just really want like a single app to combine, you know, all, all my various. So you're for curves. I want, yeah, I want. I, I can have all my fintechs in a kind of Russian doll structure. I, I got really upset because um, I, you know, I listen to Radio Four a lot, and I know that they now employ Simon as their permanent blockchain commentator. But um, you know, they were talking about this earlier, um, and you know, they said, "Oh, uh, a regulation is coming that will let your bank sell your data so other companies can sell you things." I was like, oh, no. No, could they report no, accurately, no, please? No, <laughs> And it made me so sad. See, I blame the press. I <laughs> <laughs> blame the press. The press, just the worst. <laughs> okay, so the next story is an interview that Simon did with Mark Schroeder, CEO of New10, an SME lending platform, ahead of the launch of their new digital wealth management platform in Germany. Mark spoke about their partnership with ABN AMRO and what it's like to be a fintech grown out of an incumbent bank. Let's hear from him now. I am here with uh, Mark Schroeder, who is the co-founder and chief commercial officer at New10. Mark, how are you, sir? I'm very good. How are you? I'm really well. I'm curious to learn more about New10. You guys describe yourselves as a small and medium enterprise lending platform. Could you tell me what that is and, and how it works? So what we do is we lend fully online to SME entrepreneurs from 20,000 euros all the way up to 1 million. And one, one of the things which makes us unique is that you know if you can lend as entrepreneur within 50 minutes. And not only that, you get also played back then the terms and the conditions and also the interest rate. Wow, that is fast. You're, you're turning that around really quickly. Uh, so uh, I guess what made you uh, co-found this business? What, what problem were you aiming to solve in the market? Did you believe that it was, it was hard for entrepreneurs to, to kind of get this kind of loan? Yeah, what I, what I learned from all kinds of research, but also my own experience, is that it is hard for a couple of things are hard for an entrepreneur. First of all, uh, when they request a loan at the bank, they normally don't get directly feedback. Yeah, that's one of the things they find annoying. You ask a question, it can take up to weeks before they get an answer. And the second thing is that you have to go for to the bank branch, still to the bank office for a lot of things. Uh, what we thought, let's do that differently. And that's what we did fantastic. is yeah, provide the feedback within 50 minutes, but also do everything fully online. So from all the way from application to signing and being paid out can be done within two days. And everything is online even signing. Fantastic. So 100% online experience. Uh, how long have you guys been around? How many customers have you got? And uh, where are you at in your journey? So we're just open our doors a little bit more than a month ago. And we started up from scratch. So literally scratch, nothing was there 10 months ago. And we built everything. Uh, so new core banking system, new CRS system, new front end, a new marketing campaign, setting ourselves into the market all within, yeah, in 10 months time. We're now one month open and we have now tens of customers already being paid out. Fantastic. So building all of that out in 10 months is, is pretty quick. Um, that's, uh, that's pretty rapid growth. Uh, how are you thinking about acquiring customers? And, uh, you know, what is the business model? And your, you know, what's kind of the offer to those customers? What are they, what are they going to get if they come to you? Uh, other than, I guess, you talked about the, the speed of onboarding. Is, is there anything else you guys are talking about in terms of the business model? Yeah, I think what we offer are very competitive interest rates. 
And maybe it's good to dive a little bit into that one. The reason why we did it so quickly and we can offer those rates is because we are an initiative of ABN Emro. So we are a startup, uh, but we're also a very big corporate experience bank. And what we actually do, we combine the best of both worlds, the agility of a startup with the experience and the funding of ABN Emro. That's super interesting as a model. I think we're seeing this more and more. And I think the Netherlands especially has been really leading on this. Of course, uh, uh, there's the uh, the app. Was it, uh, what's the name of the app? The yeah, Tiki. Tiki. Yes, Tiki, Tiki the yeah. app, uh, which of course came from ABN Emro, I believe. And then there's uh, your friends over at ING have Yolt, uh, which is launched in the UK as, as a partner app. This venture building model seems to be one we're seeing more and more. What's your experience been like standing on the shoulders of ABN, but also doing it as, as a startup? Has that been uh, always helpful? Or has it been useful to have that backing? Um, and do you think your customers see that as useful or, or is that just kind of like a, a nice to have to them? I think it's very, yeah, it's very good. It's a very luxury position to be in as an entrepreneur. So an entrepreneur on the shoulders of giants, as you mentioned, that's really helpful also to leverage the expertise. So using the expertise of ABN Emro provides us an opportunity to really understand all the risk data, and that will translate in better interest rates for the, the companies that we offer a loan. That's uh, hugely so I interesting. Think- yeah. I think it's super interesting because for a long time we've been hearing about corporate innovation, corporate struggling to do innovation, but building a new venture under a new brand seems to be something that's uh, that's working pretty well. So um, how do you think about partnerships, given that you have a corporate parent? Uh, what sort of partnerships uh, do, are you able to make and uh, what sort of partnerships are you thinking about in the future? Yeah, I really. So first of all, I really am a big believer of partnerships. Uh, what new 10 stands for our ambition to set the new norm within business lending uh, at the absolute score of a 10. And I believe you can only do this with partners. Uh, And actually, you need to select the right partners. So what we do, for example, is to improve the customer journey. We want that to be much more frictionless. And we can do that, for example, with companies that do bookkeeping software, have bookkeeping software. By integrating them into our journey, it can be with one click on the button, you can upload all your, all your information. You don't have to fill out any form yourself. And I think this is helpful for a customer. You don't need to provide information with it somewhere there else already. I think that's a very important one. Yeah, the bookkeeping and accounting software, the the QuickBooks from Intuit or Zero, these accounting engines are almost like the operating system for a small business. So to have that be integrated directly into your uh, kind of lending platforms and even banking platforms in the future seems seems really really strong. I'm curious about the culture uh, that you've been able to build at New Ten. Obviously, sitting inside the corporate parent and having come from ABN Amro yourself, how have you found that uh, relationship and have you found that everybody wants to come work for new 10 now or is it the case that you've kind of got some level of autonomy uh, and how's your experience been making that transition yeah so a very good question i i i believe that it is uh so first of all we have a good combination of people from the bank and people with capabilities and learning in this whole new digital world not only within banking but especially also out the bank, bank outside of the banking industry and what we learned is the combination of those two capabilities make it work and connect. So that's a very important one. Yeah, I learned so many new things. I would never 
have even know that they were there. Uh, and I learned that only in a couple of months time. It's because we have the right people on board. That's and amazing about the how culture, quickly you can learn this stuff. Yeah. And about the culture, I think, first of all, there are several steps, I think. First of all, understanding, I believe, is very important. Understanding of the yeah, entire bunk product you're offering, but also how you can make it much more as a service. Because I think it's not only a product, it's really a service which we are offering. And how can we integrate that with partners or in other uh, yeah, client journeys? So really a deep understanding of what is it what you actually do. Maybe to give an example of that, what we, what we found out is as a bank, we normally start asking you the question for your passport and checking if you did fraud or client due diligence. What we did at New 10 is we said, let's first answer the question why you're here. You're probably here because if you want to know if you can lend money, not if you committed fraud or anything. So we really changed the journey and we started to answer that question, assuming that you didn't commit fraud and you're not, you're will get past our client uh-huh. diligence. Which is amazing. Imagine that, assuming that a customer won't commit fraud. <laughs> that's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, which uh, when you look at the numbers is about right. That's, uh, that's a great, uh, I think it's a great marketing position to have as well is that we, we assume you are basically good. Um, last uh, question then, then, then I'll let you go. Um, I guess you're wholly funded by the parent ABN, and uh, kind of you've you've kind of sat within within that world. How have you found it for attracting talent? Are you able to incentivize people in new and interesting ways, or is it very much that they're working for a new brand and a new culture, which is why people want to come work for New Ten? I think they definitely want to work for New Ten because, first of all, there's a great atmosphere. It really feels like a fintech, a startup. That's what people are telling me. Another thing is that we have a great tech stack. And I think that's important, especially for IT. If you're in IT, you want to work with the best tools and they have to be there. And I think we have that and people love to work with them and can create amazing stuff when everything is new and you're working with the newest tooling. Um, So there are a couple of things. So we're definitely able to attract the right talent. And uh, yeah, this is what makes Neil Tennis success, the people that are building it completely it's it's all about talent in this day and age and having that greenfield stack to to play with can be exciting for engineers and exciting for designers who who get to do uh, truly great things for their customers mm-hmm. where people can find out more about new 10 yeah if you want to know more about new 10 you can of course go to our website www.new10.com and uh, yeah we like to help entrepreneurs grow their business and not tens but really thousands of them and hopefully uh, yeah, you spread the word and you help us spread this word and uh, make New 10 a success. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for being on Fintech Insider. Thank you very much. Now let's quickly take a break and hear from our sponsors. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to ft.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank. And the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.terminos.com. 
We never have enough time to cover every news story that's happened in this last week. But don't forget, you can head over to fintechinsidernews.com to read more about the stories we've discussed and many more besides. You can also sign up and join the discussion with everyone on the podcast, including all of us and many fantastic names in the fintech world. Tell us what you thought of this week's stories. That's fintechinsidernews.com or just tweet the show at fintechinsiders. Right, on to the last segment. First story up, N26 launches a premium debit card for the digital customer, partnering with WeWork. Wow. Yeah, interesting idea. Yeah, the name is... The name is N26 Metal. I'm, I, I do want to see some Metallica or some Slayer at least in this, like if you're going to go metal. The, the company's premium MasterCard-affiliated debit card tailored to the needs of digital customers, apparently. The card offers dedicated customer service, worldwide travel insurance, no foreign withdrawal fees, and, quote, good exchange rates. Uh, it's the first metal card in Europe that supports contactless payments, so that's kind of a nice nerd point. Um, but it's, it's got tungsten at its core. I mean, this is a heavy card. See, I'm thinking, did anyone see the movie with George Clooney um, up in the air where they yes. talk about, they talk about, like, they're like, ooh, the weight of it. Ooh. Yeah. But ooh, if, you, I'm attracted if you've got the Apple Watch, elites. you never need to take it out of your bag. So Doesn't can, matter. So you'll have a picture of a metal card on your Apple Watch. On your watch, watch <laughs> and it's fine because then you never need to touch it. My, so, one of my favorite things is yelling at Apple Pay watch people trying to get on the underground. Press going, the button oh, before you get to the barrier. Yeah. No, it's the worst thing. It's That's why Apple Watches should be banned. <laughs> <laughs> Can we not? Can we not? Because we've done this conversation a lot. (laughs) And you guys, you just need like rounding, like rounding up and just like moving along today. We're just all over the place. What happened? Wine. That's what happened. It's Christmas. It's Christmas. So this story, I, it, I mean, the tech, the tech crunch reporter has been sort of like a little bit wry and just being like, to be honest, it doesn't feel all that special. And I just, I actually don't understand what this is. It's just an affiliate credit card. It's like a nectar card credit card but for people who replace their meals with you i get the business logic right so n26 trying to appeal to a demographic of customers of a certain age who may work in startups we isn't, work have isn't a lot that of the demographic already isn't that just that's always been the demographic I it's thought, just right? cult it's just the cult of personality stuff. Oh, i mean it's we a marketing has a lot of people no, who are that I don't think it's actually a terrible idea. For a certain kind of customer, it, it's fine. So, you know, I have a British Airways credit card because it's the, okay. something I would have otherwise spent money on. I have a WeWork subscription. If the pricing was right, I might use it if it meant that I didn't okay, pay so for that. But, you know, it, when it's not I, special. When I was at journalism school, uh, we were told how to judge whether something was news. And we were given two, um, two headlines. One, Tom Cruise is gay. The other was, man is gay. And that that's basically telling you that that's none of those are news. Card, card issued. This is not news. Who cares? This is not, this is not interesting. It's a metal card. So should we move on? Let's move yeah, on. Yeah, let's move on. Actually, wait, wait hold on. Just very quickly. Um, I've, just, I've just found the uh, N26 press release, I think. Um, yeah, it is the answer. It's, so it goes, uh, hold on one second. Kidding, uh, the, the world problem. is now closer and more connected than ever. No, it's not news. Yet we still have a desire for the physical items you can hold and call your own. <laughs> Out of these two opposites comes N26 Metal, a car designed to feel, look, and act differently. N26 Metal is the result of hours of refining, distilling, and applied design. It impo- embodies the best, <laughs> the best of unique physical design and the ambition for new experiences and horizons. 
Put concretely, N26 Metal is a stunning card. It goes on and on. Wow, yeah. that's, like, that's like Johnny Ive channeled in his yeah. white room. That just feels like you had to write an essay for school and you just sort of filled it up with as many words as you could think of. No, no, that's satire for a 1-900 call. This card takes you to places while maintaining that unique connection to the moment. Yeah, sorry, Valentine. No, no, seriously, that's a 1-900 call. Okay, we're going to move on. Move on. Yeah, next. Why America could miss out big time on India's fintech revolution. This is a story submitted uh, to Fintech Insider News by Laura. Thank you, Laura. On TechCrunch. So, what do we think? So, let's just summarize the article briefly. It compares India's adoption of payments to their adoption of mobile internet usage, leapfrogging um, where many have never used PCs and laptops. And likewise, in payments, mobile could be the future. They bypassed debit and credit cards. That's the core of this story, skipping a generation, which we've talked about before. And of course, India has its United Payments, uh, inter- I thought it was Universal Payments Interface, UPI, allows any Indian with a mobile number linked to their bank account to instantly send and receive money, which we've seen with Zelle in the USA and we've seen with PayM in the UK and Vips and Swish in, in the Nordics. But it seems like it's being used. The, the suggestion here from TechCrunch is the USA could lose out to China capturing that market because of their lack of advancements in digital payments compared to WeChat and Alipay. And this is a war we've talked about before where WhatsApp are trying to get into payments but not really doing much. Facebook Messenger has payments but doesn't really do much and they never really publish their numbers. PayPal, yes, it's done all right, but they've not done anything near what WeChat and Alipay have done. And India is now the big place to play so what's going to happen it's funny you could actually write this article comparing america to any country yeah that's what yeah no i mean let's be honest it's an archaic rail system they're still attached to it there is not a faster payment initiative really coming to the forefront they're not really the regulators aren't pushing open banking it's a market pressure but they're not it's not the same sort of approach to open banking and facilitating new payment options or API. In fact, they don't want it to come over to the U.S. at all. Well, the regulators are going to have to respond to it. It's the market that's pressing it in the the first place. I mean, it's the market demanding it to make any sort of shift. But you're talking about, let's also be honest, a very navel-gazing, isolated, we're the best in the world at doing what we already do already, so why would we pay attention to how someone else is doing it? We're innovative it's a cultural thing. That that so was the that American... was another that was another reason of the thing we were talking about offline. American fintech is that's not where you're going to see the the shit hot stuff. That's not where you're going to see the innovation. It does not have the infrastructure or the environment or the culture that we have in Europe and Asia. Asia big like this is yeah. But there's also so much sunk into that infrastructure that exists already that there's no economic the incentive hubris. for them it's to... The exactly so. So necessity is the mother of invention. And, and in the in emerging markets, they've, they've leapfrogged all that technology because the market demand was there and, and they've and been forced to create something America that meets it. America is spending all its time trying to start World War III in various regions. So no, but, but like, seriously, there's so much sunk cost... Hence into the, the price in, of Bitcoin. <laughs> there you go. But there's so much sunk cost in the current infrastructure and there's so many players that have economic incentive to keep it that way. So if you're trying, again, let's go back to this industrial complex of sorts. There's no reason. The only thing, the only thing that's going to motivate it is the market to shift and the, those who have the current custodial power position right now to find that incentive as the commercial incentive. Otherwise, but then again, let's also be honest, we haven't looked east. We've pretty much looked west for most of oh, Asia, the no, Oh, God. Both Europe and the U.S. are ignoring it. But this is probably what a little bit more about this thought piece mm. is about. People, we're, we're all debating open banking and PSD2 and the CMA. Alipay and WeCheck are just going to come over 
Well, and so the Chinese didn't have the same sort of like infrastructure. They, you're right. They share and they leapfrog it completely. They, these aren't startups. They have they have experience dealing with billions of people and tiny transactions. It's coming. But and I think that that's a it's a good model for the US. So do I think that they will have all of the banks and the regulators and everyone get together to make faster payments happen? No, that's but, not going to happen. But in you've America. also got no. 11,000 <laughs> 11, financial institutions in the US. I mean, that's I mean, fragmentation from a market perspective. So so what does come along? It has to start from the ground up. It has to start with a small number of customers and then grow from there rather than than be regulated as a new type of faster payments. So how does that work? Like, what's the what's the beachhead? What's the entry point to get that kind of thing happening in america uh, <laughs> walmart i don't <laughs> no, actually yeah no it is big retail i mean if you look at the asian model it's got to be the retail it's got to be e-commerce it's got to be the retail well, i guess starbucks are holding massive amounts of deposits which is one thing you've got venmo who kind of you know essentially did a a transfer of sorts so on their own rails it is one of those those places where there is a network effect of having more and more people involved that then suddenly you build the infrastructure because you have it, I have it, they have it, and all of a sudden one more person joins and it's even better. But I, I do, I, I'm interested in your, your views as to whether you think everyone will really get together to make a, a faster payments kind no, of thing no, happen. No, no, no. I mean, that whole faster payment setup in the U.S. is not a regulatory mandate. It's a market-based solution exactly. as, as well. But that's because that's the way America works. Um, and, and yeah, and exactly, America also has, America has that perfect storm combination of hubris, the, you know, old-fashioned architecture, they hate regulation. And, uh, and they've got strong leadership, obviously. So. Yeah, but I mean, let's go back to the, yeah. <laughs> No, but let's go back to the regulatory angle. You've got five Fed regulators and state regulators, and you've got 50 state regulators. You've yeah. got the, it's a fragmented regulatory environment. So there is no single mandate. You've got to get, I'll call it collusion, because that's what it feels like. I mean, multiple party players. That's really, really challenging. Yeah, so maybe it is like Walmart. I mean, like Walmart. It is going to be, it's going to be a commercial directive. Or it's Amazon. Be or exactly. But you I mean, look to, look, don't look to the current custodians mm-hmm. to actually make it happen. And if you can't look to the current custodians, that's why we're ignoring India, because they're not paying attention to it. It's interesting to me that these tech companies that are in the U.S. are not looking to the U.S. to make the change. They're looking to India. That, because it's difficult. Where, because in America, as, as Gala said, America is 50 separate regulatory environments. More than that. More than that it's 50 and they don't want that headache. Like, why would you take that on if you could go make, if you've got a larger market somewhere else where you can make more headway? And then move back. Well, one thing the big American banks probably wouldn't do is try to make money selling crypto kitties. Simon. Oh, my God. This Yay! is the best story. We've been waiting for this for so long. <laughs> All right. So let's, ju- let's, do the, let's do the important bit first. Explain it. QZ.com reports that the Ethereum network is getting jammed up because people are rushing to buy cartoon cats on a blockchain. Um, so we'll get into that. Uh, someone sold... Someone sold a digital kitten for over $117,000. And if you go to CryptoKitties.com, you can find out more. Write me out. Wow. What a time to be alive. (laughs) I got to go. I'm I'm done. Done here. So so come on. Explain, like, what's the attraction here? How does this work? So first of all, look at them. They're adorable. But CryptoKitties is a game centered around breedable, collectible, and also adorable creatures we call CryptoKitties. Each cat is one of a kind and 100% owned by you. It can never be replicated, never taken away, never destroyed. So the cat cat is is the mascot for the entire... Anyway, I mean, it's like it's it's the animal of the web. 
I mean, go to CryptoKitties.co and just have a look for yourself how cute these are. Now, the idea here is that if you can prove something is digitally scarce, it can have value. Baseball cards were rare. They have cer- certain things. Art is rare. When something's rare, we value it. And so they've produced these. And for to me, it's like um, Pokemon, rare Pokemon were a thing. Rare Pepe's uh, on, on the internet were a thing. Beanie Babies. Beanie, Beanie Babies. Beanie Babies, it's that concept, but digitized. Now, what's added in here is they happen to have used the Ethereum network as a way to prove that it's digitally rare. Ether network? Because I'm calling Schrodinger's cat in this one. Oh, dude, that was a good joke. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think this whole thing explains ICOs just 100%. Right? Because what's actually happening is it's like people are like just throwing money around that you know easy come easy go and so whether it's like supposedly some great new technology or business that's gonna change the world or whether it's literally a digital cat they're like yeah fine i'll give you a little bit i think it speaks to a wider point though it's like the role of of games in helping people to learn the system so actually don't legitimize this <laughs> when you, for when the you benefit play any, of the audience when simon you play a video just game. pointed at sharon and thought you're awesome <laughs> it's 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 provable fact. i'm, I'm married is. to a video game journalist um but actually games give you kind of that experience of, of a kind of failure and mastery and the experience of collecting and, and actually it might sound ridiculous but it gives people a way of understanding how how crypto works and that that in itself it's is valuable. teaching people how crypto works they're buying cats do you remember, something. Do you remember 2007 the when every executive said those iPhone things are stupid. All you do is play games on them. I will never give up my BlackBerry. And then the smartphone became a thing. Hold on, hold on. We're not comparing crypto kitties to smartphones. <laughs> Tell me we're not. No, no but no. you, you learn no, screen behavior. To Fruit Ninja. I'm comparing crypto kitties to Fruit Ninja or Temple Run or that game that taught you how to use a new interface. This is something that just crosses over. Oh, I think I, I think, yeah, I think I, this, I'm going to call bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think this is much more primal. It is that sort of, it's a zeitgeisty thing. Thing. It's like Pokemon. It's like a thing. It's collecting. Um, but didn't Pokemon? And go some people just have way too much money. One hundred and seventeen thousand dollars for a for. But a, a, people love collecting shit. One hundred seventeen thousand dollars worth of love. People didn't yeah, but no, need I agree like. Yeah, when I with you, Jason, it'll be. It's a. It's a. It's right now. It's as limited as a shelf life. Like. Yeah, like, but that's okay. Sometimes yeah, this, is, this is the new okay. form of digital yeah, liquidity. And I'm going to go back to secondary asset classes. <laughs> Bring this Crypto back cats. to Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going I'm to diversify my portfolio no, from Bitcoin like, into it's crypto. It's actually cats. what we deserve, right? In like 2024, like, hey, how many crypto do you have? Oh, I only have three. I didn't get paid this month. See, I'm right? waiting. That's what we deserve. I'm, what... wait, I'm waiting for like a homeless person on the street with like, you know, I lost all my crypto kitties. <laughs> no, but like seriously, bring it back to a very serious conversation. It's actually interesting. It is. We can't have when it's possible. It's it, exactly meow. It's a new asset cat. But seriously, this is the experiment in, digi- in digital liquidity and data liquidity, and then and where the value is. The value now is not in material goods. It's in IP, and this is one of the expressions of it. it's an initial expression of IP. Digital art. That too. <laughs> and you can breed them. You've got to put, you can breed them. So this is. Didn't the thing. someone say they they'd made money putting their ki- kittens out to seed? Out to stud. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, no, no. Seriously. Seriously, we're talking stud farms now. Yeah. Digital stud farms. Oh, yeah. All right, I'm in. Let's talk about. It. So, so when you go to Crypto Kitties and you look at the marketplace, um, you can. Simon does not have any shares in Crypto Kitties. Dot <laughs> 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 co. I do not own a single Crypto Kitty. I just find this really curious. It's like 
horse racing um, and betting meet sort of like that you know you're trying to find another good horse for your horse to mate with so that you get a super generational one so that your next horse is more valuable yes it's a very relatable experience that many people have <laughs> <laughs> all right so <laughs> It's eugenics on the blockchain. <laughs> understanding, understanding form. People bet. People get obsessive over record collections. Why not cats yeah. on the internet? So yeah, like there'll be a lot of listeners who've collected something. Yeah. This is a new collectible thing, and it happens to be provably unique. And that second part is more interesting to me than the fact that they're adorable. But they are adorable. Oh. And uh, this this idea that you can also so so just to clarify, if you're listening to this, go on the website. When it, when he says they're unique, it's like it's the same like little. <laughs> Uh, it's the same, the same format, and basically the eyes change a little bit, or the color change a little bit. It's just like the same cat over and over and over again. They have a unique DNA that is digital. <laughs> And that's a 256-bit DNA that combines with two of the 256-bit DNA of which there will never be another one like it. It's provable. You can see it on the blockchain. I think I think we just have to stop here. This is the, the, suddenly the suddenly this podcast just got. I don't think there's ever going to be a more surreal story Christmas than this party one. Season Do you have an issue thing. with their attributes? Oh. Oh. oh, I'm sorry. And that's I a good, ruined your joke. Now I'm we like, should all go home. <laughs> that, that, that's so it. on that note, we're going to wrap up another new show. Thanks so much to all our guests. Where can they find out about you? Liz? Um, I am at www.girl-disrupted.com and at various fintech conferences, both good and bad, unfortunately, around the world. Sharon? Uh, probably easiest way to find me is Sharon O'Day on Twitter. Excellent. Colleen? Um, I'm at uh, ftalphaville.ft.com and also, sadly, at, on Twitter at Cadam Shiver. So no one should should uh, reach out to you on Twitter. Then. Please, please tell me to delete my account. <laughs> <laughs> and Gayla, I'll stow away for the day. She's everywhere. I go places and you just show up. <laughs> I do. I just show up lately. So just um, just don't expect me and you'll find me. Uh, otherwise, find me on Twitter at Gayla Bushkovich. And Simon? Uh, so check out Blockchain Insider on iTunes, where Colin and I break down some of the technology behind CryptoKitties, the ERC721 contract, which is actually probably the most interesting thing to happen to finance in some time. Uh, do check it out, uh, but also at SYTaylor on Twitter. And don't forget, you can find 11FS, the people who bring you this podcast, a challenger consultancy that creates and launches next-generation finance propositions for our clients, taking a startup approach to making a difference. Come talk to us at 11FS team on Twitter, or hello at 11fs.com if you want to drop us an email. If you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and obviously our sister podcast that Simon's just plugged. And please leave us a review on iTunes. We love that. Thanks for listening. 